Whether you're a Christian or you're uh, just looking for answers, maybe you've struggled with our question for today. Uh, the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion is the answer to this question. Why do I do good things? Every other religion in some way answers that question along these lines. I do good things in order to appease God. Christianity is the only religion that answers the question this way. I do good things because God is already appeased. But I'm a good person. Shouldn't that be enough to get me into heaven? Well, there's a misconception, even among some Christians, about the purpose for which God gives us his commands. We call that uh, the, the law, the things God expects from us. Jesus says things like, love God above all else. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are beautiful commands. The only problem is we can't live up to them. And so we misunderstand the purpose of the law if we think that it was given in order for us to get right with God. No, actually, the Bible tells us it was given for the opposite reason, to show that we can't get right with God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3. It says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. In other words, the purpose of the law is to show us that we're not good people. It's a misnomer. So where does that idea come from, that we're good people? Well, to use a picture, we live in a world dimly lit and with people that look about the same spiritually. So in other words, um, I see you and, and you look at me and we think, well, okay, we're pretty good people uh, because we don't see all the blemishes because, because there's too much darkness. Uh, I'll put it this way. I have been places where I look into the mirror or I see myself on camera and I think, oh, that's the way I look. Do you know what the problem is? It's not that I changed the way I look. It's that it was too well lit. There was too much light and I could see all of my blemishes. The law serves that same purpose. It's a bright light that shines on my life so that I have to see myself the way God sees me and make the conclusion that God makes of me that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, then how do we get to heaven? Jesus told a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector that went up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee began, he stood in front and he said, God, I thank you I'm not like other people, you know, other sinners like, like, uh, like the evildoers and the robbers and the adulterers or even like this tax collector. He went on and said, I, I, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. In other words, God, I'm a good person. And then, it was the tax collector's turn. He stood at a distance, his hand on his chest, his fist clenched, his head down, and he just simply said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you know what Jesus said about those two? He said it was the tax collector that went home justified, forgiven. And why? Because the tax collector realized, I'm not a good person. Uh, he realized that he needed a savior. The tax collector was tired of the treadmill of trying to get in good with God by the works that he did. Are you tired of that treadmill too? Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, how does he give us rest? By taking the burden on himself. Watch Jesus love his neighbor perfectly as he fills the needs of 5,000 who are in the need of food. Or as he feels, feel, or fills the needs of, of, of one adulterous woman who is in need of forgiveness, saving her from a mob of self-righteous people who are about to stone her. 
watch Jesus as he loves God perfectly in the Garden of Gethsemane and cries out to his Father in prayer and trusts him even in his darkest hour. Watch Jesus satisfy God's wrath over our sin by, by suffering and dying for every one of them on the cross. Friends, this is why you're going to heaven. So now what do we want to do? Well, we want to be good people. Not to earn God's favor, but because we already have it. So many people look at the visible church and they struggle because they see hypocrisy. Are there hypocrites in the church? Well, Jesus said there would be. Uh, Jesus once told a parable about um, a farmer who went out and sowed good seeds in his field, but then in, at night an enemy of his came and, and sowed weeds into the, the wheat field. And then when the wheat sprouted, the weeds came up with the wheat. And so the servant said to him, uh, Master, do you want us to go pull up the, the weeds? And the master said, no, don't do it because if you try to pull up the weeds, you might pull up the wheat with it. Wait until harvest and then we'll separate them. In other words, sometimes the wheat looks like weeds and sometimes the weeds look like wheat. Um, there are going to be hypocrites in the visible church. Jesus said that that describes his church. But, but please understand that hypocrisy is not just a Christian church thing. Uh, go back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, back to when Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he, um, he realized he was naked and for the first time in human history he felt that emotion, shame. And then God, do you remember what he did? Do you remember what Adam did? He hid from God. And then God called him on him and he asked him about it and Adam said, well, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. In other words, Adam didn't want to be seen for who he really was or as he really was and so his solution was to hide. Friends, realize that we've been hiding ever since. I mean, just look at the public persona that we put out there on Instagram and Facebook, right? We, we Many of us, most of us, all of us wear masks. Okay, insert COVID joke here. That are not the kind of masks, that, that's not the kind of masks I'm talking about. We, we wear masks because we want to make ourselves look better than we really are. It's why when I take a selfie with friends, I hold it up above my head as much as possible so that I hide my double chin, right? Not that people don't know it's there, but I try to hide it as much as possible, right? Um, and so we, we so often think about ourselves, want to portray ourselves in the most positive light, even if it's not the truth, um, and, and we think selfishly of ourselves. How about this? How comfortable would you be sharing every thought you have with everyone? No way, right? I always think it's interesting. Young children, very young children, are willing to bear it all to everyone, but it doesn't take long before we realize that we need to hide ourselves. It's one of the reasons why uh, high schoolers will give you one-word answers. How was your day? Good. Um, we become adept at hypocrisy. Uh, so you see, it's not just a, a Christian church thing. It's a people thing. That's why one response to the, to the statement could be, um, yes, there are hypocrites in the church and we could always use one more, right? Uh, Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy but for the sick. Um, Jesus didn't come for the people who have it all together. He came for the people who don't. The truth is the church is full of people who, who realize they're sinful and they need a savior and they're sick of hiding from their sins. The church is full of people who realize that they need forgiveness. And that's exactly why Jesus came. 
the Bible says, or the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, and I love this, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness or the holiness of God. Do you see what the cross means for you? It means that God now, because of Jesus, looks at Jesus and see, sees everything that's wrong with me. And he looks at me and he sees everything that's right with Jesus. The church is full of people who realize that they're nothing at all, just forgiven. In this series, we're going to try to answer some of the doubts and questions that people have about Christianity. Maybe you've heard this one, maybe you've thought about it yourself. Um, the thinking goes along these lines. Uh, nature acts uniformly and I've never seen a miracle, therefore miracles aren't possible. So the, the argument goes. Uh, but to be fair, just because you haven't seen a miracle um, or, or, or just because we haven't experienced something doesn't mean it's impossible. I suppose, to be fair, on the other side of things, um, can I give you empirical evidence for miracles? No, but that doesn't make them impossible. Um, ask yourself this question. Uh, why do you insist on saying that miracles are impossible? In other words, if, if you experienced one, uh, would you sooner doubt your senses or would you doubt your belief that miracles are impossible? Nature acts uniformly. That's absolutely true. Um, in fact, really, uh, because God created this world with order and complexity, it's one of the reasons why we have uh, something called science. The only reason that uniformity is the only reason why we can, we can study things um, in creation. Uh, in fact, that's one of the philosophical arguments for God. Uh, since there is order and complexity in the universe, there must be an orderer. But to say that means that he cannot step outside of that uniformity from time to time to accomplish his purpose would actually make the Creator captive to his creation. Uh, no, God does work miracles from time to time. He's not bound by the laws that, of nature that he set in place. Um, so why should we, why should we believe um, the miracles? Well, you look at Scripture. Um, Sometimes critics will say that, that back then in scriptural times, uh, the people lived in a pre-scientific age and, and they had no uh, scientific way to explain the phenomena, so they just called it miracles. But I would say, no, what the Bible describes is people who call things miracles because they fully know the laws of nature and, and they know when they experience a miracle. Uh, the people back then, they knew how babies were born. Um, they knew that water doesn't suddenly become wine. They knew that mud is not a salve to cure blindness. They knew that lame people don't suddenly walk because you tell them to. They knew that people don't just rise from the dead. <laughs> they called them miracles because that's what they were. Well, so why should we believe those miracles? Well, I'll be honest, first and foremost, because the Bible says to. But secondly, for this reason, because Jesus did these miracles out in the open. He did them in public. Thousands of people, believers and unbelievers, witnessed these miracles. In fact, some of Jesus' bitterest enemies acknowledged them as fact. Think of the time after Jesus rose his friend Lazarus from the dead. His bitterest enemies, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they actually said this. They said, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. In other words, <laughs> they were critical of Jesus. They were plotting to kill Jesus, not because he claimed to do miracles, 
but because he was actually doing them. Okay, so why is this so important? Well, um, because Christianity doesn't just teach miracles, it is a miracle. Christianity is the account of God himself taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus. As C.S. Lewis uh, said that if, if, if this miracle is not true, then Christianity is of no importance. But since this miracle is true, there is no one in human history more important than Jesus. Jesus came here for one purpose, to save you. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you. And do you know what that means for you? The Bible says uh, that he was delivered over to death because of our sins. But he was raised to life because of our justification, because God declared us not guilty. That means that Jesus' miraculous life, death, and resurrection means this for you. He really loves you. He really forgives you. He'll really take you home to heaven. There have been an awful lot of attempts to put Jesus back into the grave. Um, there's the swoon theory, uh, the idea that Jesus just fell unconscious on the cross, not that he died, and then he woke up again in the tomb. Now, that of course would have to assume that Roman soldiers, whose job it was to kill people, didn't actually know what dead was, and that believing somehow that Jesus, who was brought to within an inch of his life, somehow had the strength to roll back that stone and that without the Roman soldiers noticing. Uh, Okay, then, then there's the, uh, the theory, the mass hallucination theory, uh, that, that the 500 plus that Jesus appeared to, that they all shared the same hallucination. The, the problem with that is that there is no such thing as mass hallucinations where everybody sees the same thing um, and, and hallucinations aren't contagious. And we could keep going. But the point is this, um, with all of those theories, they all have one thing in common. There is not a single shred of evidence to support them. Now, why would I believe that somebody could rise from the dead? Why would I believe in Jesus' resurrection? I will be honest. The reason I believe it is because the Bible says it. Um, I believe it because Scripture has convinced me of that truth. However, I do want to point out today um, that the truth of Jesus' resurrection um, is historically reliable and, and, and it does ring true. And, and there are six quick things that I want to point to uh, to kind of illustrate that. The first one, there were so many witnesses. Um, like we said before, there were, there were over 500 that Jesus appeared to at one time over many different, in many different instances over that 40 days. Not to mention the Gospels were widely disseminated very early on and there were literally thousands of people who could have discredited them if they weren't true. And so that's, that's the first thing. The second one would be um, that the, the, the writers include embarrassing details. Um, like the fact that they didn't even believe the women when they told them that, that Jesus had risen from the dead. If, if I'm writing one of the Gospels, um, I am going to, I'm going to make, or and I'm lying, I'm going to make myself look like the hero. Um, certainly, if you want to be believed, at that time, you wouldn't have made women the, the first witnesses as they weren't considered reliable witnesses at that time. Uh, the third thing is that there are so many details. Uh, just think of when you were in high school and you were lying to your parents, not that you ever did that, um, and they asked you, you know, to tell them where you were, what you were doing. Um, would you include, if you were lying, would you include more details or less details? Oh my goodness, you would include way less details, right? Like, where were you? Out. And you hope that that goes, right? Because the more, more details you include, the more they can poke holes in your story. The fact that the disciples unashamedly included a ton of details is indication that they were telling the truth. 
Um, the, the fourth one, the fact that there was no collusion. So read the, the four accounts of the resurrection in, in the Gospels, and you will see um, that, that they are very different. They don't contradict one another, but they are very different. Kind of like if um, four people were standing on four corners and witnessing an accident and testifying in court, they're going to be describing the same accident, but they're going to be describing different details. Um, and that's what you have in the gospel accounts. Um, again, not contradictory, but very different, meaning that the, the gospel writers did not collude with each other. Like in court, if two witnesses have the exact same testimony, very often it will be thrown out because it's called collusion, because they got together on the story. You don't have any indication of that in the gospel accounts. Uh, the next one is, uh, I just put martyrs. The fact that every one of the disciples uh, was, was willing to die for their faith and did die for their faith, all except one who was exiled for his faith. You simply don't die for a lie. Uh, maybe, maybe you would die for the truth, right? But, but you certainly wouldn't die for a lie. Not, not in the way that these people did. Um, church history says that Nathaniel had his skin flayed off of him uh, before they crucified him. I mean, if I, if I get a paper cut, I, I'm done. I'm going to give up the lie if it's a lie. Um, the church history says that the Apostle Peter had to watch his wife be crucified for three days before his eyes, before they crucified himself upside down. Um, again, if it were a lie, they could have gone free if they would have simply said it was a lie. People don't die for a lie. Now, some people will say, well, what about, what about um, you know, people who die for their faith from many different faiths? They'll die for their faith even today. And I'll just say it this way. Um, if I die for my faith, if I become a Christian martyr, what does it prove? It doesn't prove that my faith is true. It proves that I believe my faith is true, right? Way different with an eyewitness testimony. Uh, if an eyewitness dies for their faith, it proves that what they saw is true. And then the final one, um, that they were hand witnesses. Um, when Thomas doubted that Jesus rose from the dead, he said, I'm gonna, I need to touch the wounds in his side and on his hands. And so Jesus let him do that. He, they not only were eyewitnesses, they were hand witnesses. Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. Uh, boiling it all down, uh, look at all the times that Jesus referred to the Old Testament and how he was the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. Think of all the times that Jesus claimed to be God and then showed himself to be God. Uh, so think of all the times that Jesus predicted that he would rise from the dead. So since Jesus is God, is it really so far-fetched to believe that he could raise someone from the dead? Here's the real question for today. What does it mean for you? Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. It means that all of his promises are true. Think of it this way. If I say to you that I'm going to die and then three days later I'm going to come back to life, what would you think? You'd say, you're crazy, right? And you'd be right. Now, what if I actually did it? Would you believe me if I made other promises? Yeah, you would because it would mean that I'm God. Now, I'm not God, but Jesus is and it means that every promise is true. It means that he really does love you, he really does forgive you, and he really is going to take you to heaven one day. We're taking time this week to answer some of the objections and questions that people have about Christianity. There's this perception out there about Christianity that goes something like this. You know what? I'm a positive person. I like to look on the bright side of things. But Christians, they're always talking about sin and hell and death and judgment. It's just too negative. Now, maybe that's a caricature of the position. Uh, but I, I will admit that sometimes Christians get the, the, the reputation for being the Eeyores of this world, just wanting to bring everybody else down. I get it. Nobody likes to be around an Eeyore. Uh, 
the Apostle Paul said this in Philippians. He said, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Um, I think we all want to think positive thoughts, but understand what prerequisite uh, Paul puts on, on, on our thoughts. The very first thing he lists, lists is whatever is true. In other words, our positivity can't be pretending, right? Um, the, the thoughts that we have have to be true. That The approach to life that if you ignore a problem and it'll go away or it's only a problem if you treat it like one, those things sound comical until you realize the sad reality that that's many people's approach uh, to their spiritual needs. Uh, to do that spiritually is the equivalent of saying, um, like, if I have cancer, if I just ignore it, it'll go away. No, and I know that this is not a pleasant thought, but you need to treat your cancer or it will kill you, right? The same is true when it comes to realizing what God says about me and my sin and where that leaves me, that the wages of sin is death. Yes, that is negative, but it's necessary. Theologians um, will call that uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit's strange work. And, and it's called a strange work uh, because that's not his goal. His, his ultimate goal is not just to convince you that you're a sinner and you deserve hell. No, his ultimate goal is to treat you. Uh, but in, if you take the picture, um, you have to believe that you have the cancer of sin before he can treat it, right? It's kind of like a doctor when he tells you of cancer. He, he didn't become a doctor in order to tell you that news. That would be sick. No, but he has to tell you that news so that he can begin to treat you. The Holy Spirit's strange work is to convict us of sin. And yes, that seems negative, but the whole goal is so that he can heal us with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus. And in preaching, we call that letting the gospel predominate. And what that means is that in every message, we're going to make sure that the gospel of Jesus heals everything that the law has, has, has torn apart in us. And so if you ask me, what is Christianity all about? I'm going to give you an answer like this. I'm going to tell you that I am a sinner and that I'm going to die. But I have a Savior named Jesus who lived for me and died on the cross to take away all my sins and rose from the dead so that one day I'll rise too. The cancer of my sin has been cured. And that now means that in my life, I wake every, every day I wake up as a redeemed child of God, knowing that Jesus is with me, knowing that Jesus um, is working all things out for my good, knowing that Jesus is blessing me in ways that I can't possibly imagine, <laughs> knowing that Jesus is preparing a place in heaven for me, knowing that every day he gives me so much freedom to serve him with thankfulness and give him glory in my life, knowing that I have all I need in him. Now, what's negative about that? Uh, and it's true, too, right? And so the next time you find yourself thinking negatively, I want you to think back on these words uh, of Paul. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, think about those things. And then think about who's the epitome of all those things. It's Jesus. Think of him and you will be positive. Hey, hey, what's up, everyone? Pastor Mike here. I want to tell you that we have a brand new podcast through Time of Grace called Bible Threads with Dr. Bruce Becker. Uh, Bruce is one of my colleagues at Time of Grace, and he has a, an amazing gift of going deep into God's Word. Uh, I think all of us love the simple message that Jesus loves us, and he proved it at the cross. 
But there is so much when you really dig into the meat of Scripture. And that's what Dr. Becker does in this brand new podcast. So if you want to check it out with me, you can search for Bible Threads wherever you like to enjoy your podcasts. Uh, I guarantee it's going to be worth your time as we find these amazing treasures that God has put into his word.